Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last night, for the first time in five years, North Korea launched a ballistic missile that flew over Japan, prompting Tokyo to urge citizens into shelters. This as the region girds for Pyongyang to conduct another nuclear test. Later in the program, what the tests mean for the future of U.S. and allied air and missile defenses in the region. But first, joining us is Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, one of our regulars on our Washington Roundtable every Friday. Patrick, uh, thanks so very much for uh, joining us, especially so early in the week. Good to be here. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Air and Space Force Associations. Aerospace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. That's also sponsoring our upcoming coverage uh, of the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting next week in Washington, D.C. Uh, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks very much for doing uh, double duty because we hope that you'll join us uh, for Friday's roundtable uh, as well. Obviously, a significant event. First time in five years, the North Koreans have fired missiles uh, over uh, Japan or a missile over Japan. Japanese authorities uh, told uh, their citizens to take to uh, shelters. Why now and what's the significance of this test by the North Koreans? Well, this is an escalation on the part of Kim Jong-un. He's been on uh, a, a tear this year with the missile campaign. He's fired at least 39 ballistic missiles, and that's not counting uh, several cruise missiles this year. But this was the first time he fired the Hwasong-12 intermediate-range ballistic missile over Japan. He actually fired one uh, at the beginning of the year, but lofted the trajectory so it wouldn't land, it wouldn't have to cross over uh, Japanese territory. Um, the fact that he feels emboldened enough to be able to fire across Japan without uh, suffering penalty suggests that he um, senses a moment, again, in the international environment. Major power tensions are, are great, um, and uh, U.S. And, and allies are focused on, on so many other issues that he felt that this is the time to flex this military muscle. He's also probably trying to achieve some very uh, basic uh, military objectives, uh, including refining the reentry vehicle that has long been missing uh, in terms of the final piece of his uh, successful uh, ICBM and IRBM program. So there could be testing here to refine this because this was the longest flight test of any missile in North Korean history. Um, so even ICBM tests in the past have had loftier uh, trajectories right. and haven't gone as far as this. This went about uh, nearly uh, 2,860 miles, I believe. Uh, and, you know, one of one of the problems uh, and challenges always is what's the best way to respond uh, to the North Koreans, uh, because a lack of response then just encourages more uh, bad behavior. Um, Kim is expected to uh, do nuclear tests. We've discussed that on the Friday roundtable considerably. Um, Two part question. First, how does everybody have to respond uh, to what he just did? Because Beijing is largely supportive of Pyongyang, uh, right? Uh, they, they're working closely with the Russians, so they seem to have cover. What's, what, how does the international community have to respond 
uh, after after this escalation. Well, first, yeah, I mean, the first thing is to recall even the recent history of 2017. So during that uh, fire and fury moment of, of heightened tensions between the United States and North Korea, um, the United States famously uh, leaked uh, a discussion of a possible bloody nose strike, a preventive lim limited strike on North Korea, um, which could obviously quickly escalate. And that created tremendous uh, tensions. And in fact, it probably helped push the Chinese to help rein in North Korea. Um, and North Korea declared success of its ICBM program that uh, late November of 2017. And we went into diplomacy. That diplomacy is now stalemated long ago. And the missile campaign this year is uh, an indication that North Korea is uh, uh, trying to refine and expand its program. And meanwhile, China is not helping. China is, in fact, been uh, trying to leverage any cooperation on the North Korean issue, or Ukraine for that matter, um, for other policy concessions, namely Taiwan, 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 and maybe also technology policy. So we're in a very tough situation here in terms of the U.S. trying to get China, not to mention Russia, which is not helping at all, uh, on side to uh, rein in the uh, expanded sense of provocation that Kim Jong-un's operating under. So the, so the first thing we need to do is to still try to reduce that envelope for provocation or at least make it airtight so that he can't actually cross the threshold of a test into the use of a nuclear weapon. And those are two very, very different things. Um, there's no sense here that Kim Jong-un wants to use a nuclear weapon at this moment. But this is a related second point, Vago. North Korea is working on a more threatening nuclear strategy uh, and a, a, a more threatening military strategy, period. Um, that the, rain, the number of short-range ballistic missiles that have been tested, including recently, but also this year in general, uh, are probably hooked up to the hypervelocity capabilities that North Korea is working on to really threaten South Korea, uh, to threaten any uh, reinforcement of South Korea in a, in a contingency. And now the Hwasong-12 puts Guam in danger. It puts all U.S. bases in Japan in danger. And North Korea uh, has talked about this nuclear doctrine, which is no longer just for deterring other nuclear threats, but could be used offensively and could be used even if he's gone. It could be used, to, you know, delegated. Um, and he is pursuing a, a range of weapons of mass destruction programs that he, again, laid out in January of last year at the 8th uh, Korean Workers' Party, the North Korean political apparatus. So there is this threatening nuclear strategy that has to be dealt with on its own terms. There's the envelope for provocation that seems to be bigger that Kim Jong-un is acting under. That needs to be closed. And meanwhile, the United States needs to do the really hard thing, which is to reassure and work with allies, namely South Korea and Japan, so that they don't feel like they're losing the balance of power here. 55% of South Koreans just recently polled said they want a, a nuclear weapon. And this is happening just weeks after the very first resumption of U.S.-South Korean extended deterrence strategy and consultation group talks. That's a long mouthful to say that we're trying to reassure the South Koreans that we know how to use our so-called strategic assets like the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier and F-35s right. and bombers in a way to ensure deterrence of North Korea's use of weapons. Shinzo Abe, uh, the late Shinzo Abe, uh, restarted the conversation about whether or not the United States should uh, host uh, nuclear weapons uh, in Japan. Um, obviously, during the Cold War, the United States did have nuclear munitions, something that was not uh, widely discussed, but something that was very real. South Korea is considering uh, a bomb and has considered it. We should point out in the 1970s, the Japanese 
developed a weapon uh they assembled it and then they you know my understanding is uh disassembled it and put it in the basement but they have the means of delivery and certainly have the technology to go nuclear if they wanted to what does this tell us about where tokyo uh is going to go uh, regarding nuclear weapons and especially korea which doesn't have the same kind of nuclear uh doesn't have the same baggage that japan does in japan is it is now getting more and more serious about developing counter-strike weapons um south korea has been developing more capable missiles and is thinking more about uh, weapons to deter North Korea and, and China for that matter. Um, I think deterrence is just a lot easier than reassurance. So this whole extended deterrence game in which the United States is trying to reassure our best allies in Northeast Asia that we're going to be there, and I think we will be there. Nonetheless, they want absolute guarantees that only they can provide because it's their nation um, and that means there's going to be an upgrading of defense capabilities in South Korea and Japan. China should not be very eager to see that. And yet China may still be reluctant to cooperate on reigning in North Korea. And um, it means that there are going to be more tensions between South Korea, Japan and China. Um, how so? Well, uh, South Korea's last government had a three nose agreement, you recall, no more THAAD missile defense batteries not integrated with Japan and the U.S. systems, and no trilateral alliance. Well, I think President Yoon has been very wise to kind of step away from those, saying those were just policy decisions. They're not ironclad. Um, and now I think he needs to move in the direction of making them actually happen. And I think Japan will be a ready partner in this more integrated defense capability. It may be that trilateral cooperation does get China's attention enough to say, well, we disagree on Taiwan, we disagree on technology, but we actually want to cooperate on preventing the nuclear diffusion and weapons of mass destruction diffusion in Northeast Asia that we're about to see because um, China itself is leading that march by doubling down on a, a nuclear modernization program in this decade, according to the intelligence community, that we have never seen uh, from China. So this is going to be a growing uh, environment in which nuclear weapons are not used, but are threatened and are used for deterrence uh, at least. And if we're not in that game, uh, then we're we're ceding certain advantages to North Korea and to China. Um, what are how are um, uh, Pyongyang and Beijing looking at the nuclear saber rattling, uh, uh, Russia's nuclear saber rattling? Uh, the more cornered Putin gets, the more he talks about it. He was trying to use it as a deterrent at first. Uh, that didn't work. New York Times had a great story that actually these tactical nuclear weapons are better for intimidation than actually real world uh, use. Um, Ultimately, it is still deterring us. We're still not giving ATACMs, for example, uh, to the Ukrainians because the Russians have said uh, what their red lines are, um, and we appear to be observing them. What are the messages all of this is sending? Uh, because if it was me, I'd be brushing Russia's threats aside, and I would be sending ATACMs and a lot of other weapons uh, to the Ukrainians. What what are the messages that Pyongyang and Beijing are taking from what Vladimir Putin is doing and what he's getting away with and what he's not getting away with? Well, I think you've characterized it well, Vago. Uh, Russia's showing that nuclear saber rattling has results, right? It can restrain powerful countries like the United States and its NATO partners, um, not restrain them completely because obviously we're providing Ukraine with weapons. But as you point out, we're not providing them with the best weapons. We're not providing with the most powerful weapons. Um, and I'm not saying we have to go to the other extreme, but um, we have to recognize that this is exactly what uh, Putin is hoping to use the nuclear weapons for. 
That is not lost on Kim Jong-un. That is not lost on Xi Jinping. They understand now that nuclear weapons have utility. Um, and uh, the threat, even the new nu nuclear doctrine threat out of North Korea, which talks about the possible use of nuclear weapons, you have to look at that in the context of not really uh, as much as, yes, I can be powerful and look more menacing and threatening and get my way more if I look like I'll use nuclear weapons. Um, and so if the United States is not playing that same kind of set of rules, um, if we look like we want to be loved more than feared, um, we're going to be pushed around a bit, or at least our allies are going to be pushed around a bit. And that's why the extended deterrence talks, the integration of our defense systems with Japan and Korea, our defense upgrades uh, are so important in Northeast Asia right now. We're going to have to be absolutely solid, united, strong, um, forceful, maintain deterrence, but at the same time, not let Pyongyang or China's modernization uh, exact a price and undermine uh, deterrence and the balance of power. Um, what are our respective windows vis-a-vis uh, -vis where the North Koreans want to be in their capabilities uh, and where um, the Chinese want to be on theirs? I mean, um, you know, the Obama administration was surprised uh, at, at, for, at first pleased that it had managed to figure out ways to sabotage and delay the North, uh, North Korean program. But then it appears that they actually accelerated it in part because of Russian and Chinese uh, technology that are included in their weapons. I mean, th this is kind of a big problem. We knew what it, what was happening at the time and we chose to sort of uh, look away and, and now we've, we have a problem. How many years before the North Koreans get to where they want to be how many years before the Chinese get to where they want to be when it comes to their uh, renewed uh, or improved nuclear capabilities? Well, I think those goals are probably uh, a movable feast. I mean, again, if you think about November 2017, North Korea said we finished uh, and, you know, clearly they're not finished. Um, I think, though, uh, at a practical sense, uh, in answer to your question, uh, the middle of this decade, 2027, even to, you know, to, to underscore that year of maximum danger that many have pointed to, I think probably fits pretty well with the North Korean plan right now. And I say that because I'm assuming that Kim Jong-un is reading the Yoon Suk-yeol administration, which is still in its first year uh, in, the, in the administration, um, as somebody that's not going to be able to deal with it uh, because it's not going to accept uh, providing concessions to a nuclear-armed uh, North Korea. Similarly, I think they see that from the Biden administration. So they may be hoping for, you know, someone like Trump to come back into power, or it, maybe they're assuming that there will be no off-ramp in terms of diplomacy from the West, from, from Seoul and from Tokyo and from Washington. So they're just going to keep expanding their capability, riding beneath the wave of modernization that China will be leading, beneath the wave of war that Russia will be leading. What does Washington have to do uh, immediately in the next 24 or 48 72 hours. Well, I was glad to see that there were exercises immediately commencing after this. So uh, my understanding is that the South Korean and U.S. forces and presumably Japanese forces are all uh, conducting military exercises to show readiness um, because uh, there could be a nuclear test coming. There was a nuclear test a week after the last Hwasong-12 uh, fired over Japan in 2017. Um, and so the nuclear test, whether it happens uh, about around the 10th of October, uh, a key date for North Korea, or whether it's, it waits till after the 20th Party Congress of China and therefore happens maybe the end of October or toward the end of this year, um, they're going to have to be uh, demonstrations of allied military capability to uh, 
launch punishing strikes against any uh, lethal use of, of weapons. And meanwhile, they're going to have to show that they're building up their capabilities. You, you hinted earlier, uh, Vago, about uh, you talk about Prime Minister Abe, not even hint, um, uh, you know, so having uh, assets deployed in Japan. Um, I think we're going to look at deploying those strategic assets in Japan, in Korea, in a bigger way uh, as part of this, as well as building up Guam's defenses, as well as building up our capabilities with Australia and, and, and further out. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we we can't do all of that in the first couple of days, but we can signal our intention to do this uh, in terms of a, a forward deployment of some major strategic asset. Let, let me just ask you one uh, follow-up question. The, the United States was always, uh, you know, a lot of trepidation about getting tough on China, in part because we wanted to use China as a counterweight to help us against the Russians. That we needed uh, Chinese help to sort of uh, keep uh, the North Koreans uh, in check. And that no longer appears to be working. The relationship is fragmenting, in part driven by uh, Beijing and what Beijing wants. How accommodating is China likely to be either before she is coronated or after she is coronated? Uh, because it's it simply, right, all of these, all of these are inter, interconnected. The North Koreans are helping, for example, with trainers as well as munitions, uh, you know, helping the Russians in Ukraine at a time when the Russians are on the ropes. I mean, the United States basically is not going to get any help, is it? And and is there any way that it can compel help or are actually the levers of power more in Moscow and Beijing's corner uh, in this case? It's hard to imagine the, the sense that China is going to relent on its own strategic goals. But tactically, yeah, they have some latitude here, especially if they sense that they're going to face alliance defense integration and modernization on the part of the US, South Korea, and Japan, more forward strategic assets on the part of the United States. If they sense that's real, they may move to tactically rein in limit North Korea. But uh, up to this point, and this is a question I put to Assistant Secretary Dan Crittenbrink last night on the record, um, you know, he said, look, there been so much looking for linkage between North Korean cooperation and other issues. And that's not really been uh, something the, the administration is gonna accept. And they shouldn't. So um, it may be that this fear of alliance integration and defense modernization tips China into the sort of over into the realm of at least limited cooperation on North Korea. But we can't count on that. And it'll be tactical and limited. Even if we do find that cooperation, the reality is that China is going to continue its own nuclear modernization is going to continue to be hardline on Taiwan. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, the outlook is still for U.S.-China rivalry. Patrick, thanks very much for joining us and looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation on Friday. Thanks so much. Thank you. And joining us now is our good friend, retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Director of the Center for Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he is also uh, the Director of the Bipartisan Cyber Solarium 2.0 Commission. And while he was in uniform, he served as U.S. Indo-Pacific Command's Director of Operations, or the J3. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me again, Bogo. Uh, an absolute pleasure, especially on such a short notice. Uh, Patrick handled the geopolitics of this. I want to get your military take. Uh, what does this uh, North Korean test mean militarily and uh, for the region in terms of the capability, um, not, not just the region and perhaps even for the United States, that's the capability the North Koreans are demonstrating? Well, you know, this is once again uh, a demonstration by the North Koreans that we're relevant, right? That we matter and you need to... Um, 
know, consider us in your in your planning. So if I was back at Indopaycom, I'd look at this as, okay, they've again demonstrated their ability to fire missiles that could eventually, you know, they, if, if aimed this way and properly operating and functioning could hit Guam. Um, B, they've once again shown some skill in the, in the idea, you know, this, this flew over Japan. It did not fly in Japanese airspace because it was in space, but it flew, you know, in space over Japan. So they were able to do, you know, reasonably accurately and uh, correctly fire this missile. So what this reminds us is that they hope, not just that they hold South Korea at risk, we've known that for decades, that they hold large segments, if not all of Japan at risk, and they hold uh, US um, uh, you know, uh, uh, territory in the Pacific, you know, in the Marianas and specifically Guam at risk. So this is a reminder that we're required to defend Guam um, as part of homeland defense. We're required to defend uh, alongside Japan, Japanese um, territorial uh, uh, airspace, uh, and then and that we're, along with Korea, we're required to defend uh, the uh, the southern half of the Korean Peninsula. That's a lot of requirements. Um, it, it is a lot of requirements, and it's a lot of messaging on the part of the uh, uh, North Koreans. Indeed, they march forward with their capability. The test. Thirty uh, ninth, I think Patrick uh, mentioned for the year, and we expect a nuclear test to be coming up. Uh, coming up. What are the defenses? So talk to us a little bit defensively, right? Because there are two ways for the United States to handle this. Obviously, offensive demonstrations and military exercises. Uh, but the other part of it is the actual capabilities we have to intercept uh, and to shoot down these capabilities for our allies and partners. Obviously, Japan, uh, Korea, and the United States share the Aegis um, combat system. Walk us through both on the defensive side, whether we're able to defend against uh, weapons like this, and then on more the uh, offensive conventional side, what is the messaging that, um, that we should be telegraphing at this moment? Yeah, so this is a great discussion because really when you look at the defensive side, again, you have to look at all three layers of the problem. First, we and the Koreans have to work together to pr pr protect the peninsula against cruise and ballistic missile attacks. Now we have, uh, you know, rather famously put Thad there. We already have Patriot there. Um, based on a joint urgent need from the Indo-PACOM commander, we have a, a U.S. Forces Korea commander. We have a um, some improved integration of Patriot and Thad uh, on the peninsula. We don't have thick cruise missile defense capabilities on the peninsula, but that's because we don't have those in, in a land-based variety, and that's a whole other discussion. The the and the uh, this is matched by some limited Republic of Korea um, uh, air defense systems. But, you know, we have a lot of systems there, not near enough for the kind of threat we're going to get from Korea, but, but some systems. Um, stepping back to Japan, um, you now begin to really involve the navies. The navies can help a little bit in the Korean situation, but not much. But now you have navies that you can put in the Sea of Japan. So the Japanese have a significant number, you know, they have, um, I think, six in the water now, um, uh, Aegis uh, equipped destroyers headed towards eight and eventually potentially 10. Uh, we have a number, you know, we have um, nine uh, uh, you know, destroyers and, and cruisers stationed, I guess 10 now destroyers and cruisers stationed in Yokosuka that can be out in the Sea of Japan. So that's a good number. I mean, can you keep a permanent patrol there? Not likely, but uh, in, in times of increased warning or crisis, you can put ships there. We also have Patriot systems in uh, in um, 
uh, Japan, the Japanese have a significant number of Patriot systems, some cruise missile defense systems. So together with Japan, we have a significant capability. But again, we cannot protect. I do not believe that we'll be in a position to protect all the places all the time against a North Korean attack uh, on, on Korea, which clearly this missile by flying over it showed the capability and the capability of shorter range missiles to hit it. And then finally, you have the defense of Guam. Now, look, that's historically why we had that Patriot and a ship on station off of Guam was about the North Korean threat. Recently, you and I and many others have been discussing the defense of Guam from a China perspective, which is a much more capable, you know, much higher capability requirement and a much higher capacity requirement. But again, the North Koreans have reminded us that they have that capability today. And on the on the idea that someone, you know, if you see risk as capability plus willingness to use it, I would say the North Koreans have always showed a slightly kookier self, right? And so the idea that they have a capability and they're probably more likely to use it than China should remind us that we, not only do we have to improve our defense of Guam long-term for China, but that investment in a 360-degree spy radar, um, either spy six or spy seven radar in Guam with a robust, you know, vertical launch system along with some mobile launchers and a good command and control system will help us against North Korea as well. Uh, so just one more strong argument for accelerating or for fast tracking the defense of Guam systems and not letting DOD and Congress right. kind of push the issue around, uh, you know, like like a, a ball of yarn. Well, uh, so one of the things that you've artfully uh, said is, right, I mean, this is a bureaucratic Dante's Inferno, uh, right? Um, you're trying to improve air and missile defenses uh, for air bases uh, on Guam and other facilities. And, it, you know, you want the Army and the Navy to be paying, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very difficult challenge. Um, the administration uh, has put money in the Pacific Defense uh, Initiative. Where are we? in uh, improving the air and missile defenses on Guam, uh, because uh, you know you were you participated in uh, Mark Kansian's uh, recent war games at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and these missile volleys and salvos were exceptionally uh, devastating. I mean, dozens of you know a dozen squadrons of fifth and fourth generation uh, jets destroyed just on Guam, and that's not to say what was destroyed in Mizawa and then in Alaska and uh, and and elsewhere. Um, where are we? And what is the kind of investment we need? And, and my follow-up question to that is that the U.S. Air Force is getting the Continental Cruise Missile Defense mission. It's great that somebody's going to be having that mission. The, the, the problem is who's going to pay for it? T take us to Guam uh, first, and what do we need to be doing? And where are we relative uh, to, again, the, the ball of yarn that Congress and the administration are kicking around? You know, so first, uh, as a reminder, the North Korea problem will neatly fit inside the China problem when you solve for the defense of Guam. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news, of course, is like you said, there's a lot of back and forth. I do think we're heading towards a proper solution long term. Um, that proper solution is going to be a system anchored in a, in a, a, a spy six or spy seven radar. It may not be in a deck house like you're used to seeing in ages ashore, but instead spread out in multiple arrays and a uh, 
kind of a rich grouping of, of launch systems, vertical launchers, which Congress is adding in to the mobile launchers that the administration was arguing for. I think all that will happen and the funding will begin to happen and the authorizations in this NDAA. Additionally, I think they'll, you know, the administration is already buying SM3s and SM6s and uh, um, Congress is going to double down on them. You know, recognizing munitions is such a significant issue from Ukraine. We have the same problems in Asia. You know, you'll see increased SM3s and SM6s. Um, and so I, I think you'll see improvements there. The one place where you're not seeing the movement right now is on crew, the cruise missile defense problem, which is not this missile we saw from North Korea, but a different problem from China. That one, the Air Frank Kendall showing a lot of uh, aggressiveness and foresight. And he's actually, you know, the Air Force is out there testing, you know, um, NASAMs with different types of missiles. I think this could contribute to defense of the homeland. But I also think it could defend, contribute to the defense of homeland in Guam. So, and I think it would have to, it should be the army who does that. And I, I think it will be eventually. I think the army will settle on NASAMs. I'll put it this way. The army thought NASAMs was good enough for Ukraine. They think it's good enough for Taiwan. I think it's about time that we think it's good enough for America. So we should be seeing that NASAM starting to come. But it, in my mind, these things are happening. I think the administration is, is leaning into it. I think Congress is leaning into it even further. And as long as we don't get in a fight over, uh, I'm not going to fund your A unless you do my B, you know, we're going to be okay. Uh, as long as, you know, basically everything gets over the transom, we'll be in good shape. Um, uh, but how, do we have any sense on how much money uh, this is going to cost? Because we have a tendency sometimes of applying missions uh, to people and folks accepting missions or being assigned missions or volunteered for missions, but then the funding actually doesn't, doesn't come. What's a realistic expectation so, of how much money is required to do uh, to do both jobs, right, uh, Mark, a defensive Guam job, but also then a continental uh, air and, and missile defense of the United States, the likes of which we haven't had, you know, ever on cruise missiles and certainly not since the height of the Cold War uh, when it when it comes to atmospheric threats. So here's how I'd say it. the defense of Guam one is probably calculable. And I think it's probably more than the administration thinks. I think it's more in the three to four billion range because I think you have to solve for a couple issues they're not solving for like cruise missile. But I think, the, you know, there's they're starting to peg the ballistic missile cost, you know, probably in the two to three billion dollar range. But when you throw in the cruise missile defense, three to four um, now, the defense of the homeland is a much a cruise missile defense of the homeland. You tell me how many defended assets are there? Are we going to defend just high value targets? Or are we going to, uh, you know, are we going to do counter targeting or counter value? What I mean by that is, are we going to defend cities? Or are we going to defend military sites? Or are we going to defend both? The price tag of this could get astronomical. I mean, it's going to probably start in the, you know, 20 to $40 billion range and only move north of that over time. So that these are two different um, cases here Guam and defense of the homeland. Defense of Guam. Well, expensive, manageable, and quantifiable. Defense of the homeland. There's still a lot of um, of assumptions that have to be answered before someone can give you an even ballpark figure on the cost that I would trust. Um, and let me ask you one uh, last uh, question. You know, as Patrick mentioned, there may be uh, more tests. Uh, he's going to be joining us on our Friday roundtable, so he can give us a recap on it. What are some of the things the U.S. military has to do to send a conventional deterrent message, uh, not just to the North Koreans, but uh, worldwide, right? Because increasingly, China and Russia are looking at uh, what we do 
relative to either uh, three of them uh, in terms of the lessons they're concluding? What are what are some of the military uh, and and other signals Washington should be sending uh, in the next 24, 48 hours? So again, if I was the adversary, I'm looking at the United States and I'm measuring my risk. It's what's the United States capability times their willingness to use it. The United States capability in this area is unquestioned. We are world-class strike, you know, um, strike enablers, and and uh, you know whether it's the Air Force or the Navy, and soon the Army, Marine Corps. We have demonstrated a sustainability to accurately strike at great range and hold at risk targets. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is our willingness to use it. So I think this is much more, you know, how we talk, what we do outside of military terms. Uh, to communicate to North Korea that we're serious about what we do and don't want them to do. The capability is not in question. It's the credible use of it. And I think this applies to North Korea, China, Russia, and Iran as they assess us. Do they believe we're willing to do what, you know, what we say we would do or what our allies and partners would want us to do? Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago.